0: Hello, and welcome to the Three Links Oddcast, your podcast for all things
1: having to do with Odd Fellowship. And now, here are your hosts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Three Links Oddcast. Toby, do I get to say it's a very special episode this time? Yes,
0: because of our guest, you can say it's a very special episode.
1: (sighs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And welcome to a very special episode of the Three Links Oddcast. I'm one of your hosts, Ainsley Heilek. And I'm another of your hosts, Mike Dominiac.
0: And I'm your third host, Toby Hansen. And as always, we are brought to you by Pig and a Pug Bath Stuff, your choice for wonderful, simple, natural bath products made right there in beautiful Missoula, Montana, where Highway 93 goes up Reserve Street and then gets on I-90, goes a little bit west, and then goes up north toward Flathead Lake. But, of course, if you lived in Montana, you'd probably know that. If you didn't live in Montana, you would know that Missoula is the home of pig and a pug bath stuff. If you like bathing, and I sure hope you do, please choose pig and a pug bath stuff, makers of all kinds of nice-smelling, wonderful soaps, bath bombs, and other personal cleaning products. Remember, all of our listeners here on the Three Links Podcast get the special discount Thank You 24 for 24% off their orders. For this episode, we have a very special guest, and that's what makes it a very special episode. (laughs) Joining us from the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Center and Library, we have their official historian, Dustin McLaughlin. Welcome, Dustin. Hello, thanks for having me. It's a real treat to have an actual historian here on the show. This is our special President's Day episode. And uh, as most of our listeners know, we have had a few presidents who have been odd fellows. Now, some of those presidents are mostly inconsequential. Uh, Warren Harding, for example. And, you know, he only got about two years in uh, office, and uh, they kind of weren't all that productive, and they... They gave us the Teapot Dome scandal, so we don't talk much about Warren Harding. Uh, and then a lot of people will mistakenly attribute Harry Truman to us, but he was a Freemason, past Grand Master of Missouri, but never an Odd Fellow. So that leaves us with uh, a couple of presidents who were Odd Fellows: Franklin Roosevelt, of course, who belonged to everything, uh, <laughs> and then we have uh, Brother Grant, uh, Ulysses S. Grant. He was an Odd Fellow. McKinley. And then one of the probably least known, least understood, and sort of most maligned of historical presidents, Rutherford B. Hayes. So to start out with, how about you give us a a quick biographical sketch of Brother Rudd and kind of tell us a little bit about his life and his history?
2: That question was to me,
0: right? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Although Mike actually knows quite a bit. Okay. about brother Rudd too okay uh so quick just biographical sketch you said okay so he was
2: uh born in Delaware Ohio in 1822 he spent uh, his childhood there uh went up to Norwalk Ohio for some schooling uh with his uncle Sardis who lived in the area uh, in Fremont uh, lower Sandusky at the time and then uh, went off to Connecticut for a quick year and came back to Ohio to uh, do some college at Kenyon. Uh, he was hoping to move on to Yale shortly after a year or so at Kenyon, but decided uh, that he enjoyed his, t- his time there and stayed at Kenyon the whole time. Uh, he, just, he was going to go to uh, Columbus and learn to be a lawyer there spent about 10 months with underneath a lawyer and decided that he wasn't really learning anything. So he went to Harvard and got a law degree. Uh, after his two years at Harvard, he was instructed to go to a small town because in a small town is where you would get business and you could not be uh, in competition with so many other lawyers. Uh, so he moved to lower Sandusky or Fremont, Ohio with his uncle Sardis, where he could, um, you know, start his career and he had his uncle there to put, uh, send business his way. He did that for five years and then he moved to Cincinnati and quickly wrote in his diary, Oh, the five years I wasted in Fremont uh, <laughs> realizing that uh, not only was it uh, not very stimulating for him as a lawyer and as a uh, individual who was looking for a social life. He uh, also was not finding someone to marry. Uh, he wasn't finding mm. any women. Uh, so he moved down to Cincinnati and uh, was reconnected with the, uh, a uh, young girl named Lucy. Uh, now he had met her <laughs> when she was, he had met her when she was 15, uh, but he was 24 uh, and decided that that was too much of a gap uh, at that particular time. Uh, so when he was then uh, 28 and she was 19, uh, the, the, um, the age gap was less uh, of a problem for him. So he decided to pursue her um and they were married a few a couple of years later uh, he they got married when he was 30 and she was 21 uh and you know he did make his his, uh, career in Cincinnati. So he decided matter of fact, later on in life, when other potent, uh, prospective lawyers would ask for his advice, he gave all of them the exact opposite advice he got. He said, go to a big city. It's going to take longer, but your success will be just as sure. And your life will be more fulfilling. Um, and he did have a fulfilling, uh, about a decade plus in Cincinnati uh, with his wife, having kids, uh, lawyer uh, was his law career was taken off. Uh, this was the era of the fugitive slave law. So there were uh fugitive slaves that were going across the Ohio into into, into the state of Ohio, moving north. Uh, So Hayes as a lawyer on multiple occasions became involved with the defense of those individuals who were being uh, put in a commissioner's court to be sent back to the South. Um, In addition to other, other court cases as well, he became the city solicitor in Cincinnati uh, for about three years. And then of course, uh, 1861 happened. Um, And in that year uh, the war broke out between the North and the South. And he actually, conferred with his Kenyan classmate, Stanley Matthews, who would go on to be a a Supreme court justice. And they talked together about whether they were going to join the war. I mean, they were in their upper thirties at this point, they had families. Um, It wasn't a foregone conclusion to just jump in. Uh, But Rutherford uh, and Stanley Matthews decided that they would rather be in the war. Um, And Hayes specifically commented on slavery as the reason why he wanted to join that war. He spent all four years there. Uh, his most memorable time from a big picture American history standpoint of the Civil War was at the end in the Shenandoah Valley when Jewel Early was making his attempts to the north as Grant and Lee were um, bogged down in, the, in, the, uh, in, the ca- in their campaign. Uh, but he would be mustered out as a brigadier general or as a brevet major general, he got the honorary title, second to star. Uh, And then he went off to Congress for three years, came back to Ohio as a governor for four, four years, thought he was retired. That's when he moved to Mm -hmm. Fremont again and decided that that's where he was going to stay. Uh, but about, uh, three years later, the Republicans came back to him and said, Mm -hmm. we, we, we need to win an election and you're a vote getter. And not only could we, not only could you be the first third term governor of Ohio, but you would have an outside shot at being president of the United States. So he does, he runs for governor, becomes the first third term governor of Ohio. And halfway through that term, he runs for the presidency. Uh, I think we're going to probably talk a lot about that election in this episode. Oh, yeah. Skip it for this little (laughs) bio. 1876
0: (laughs) was a fun election.
2: (laughs) Uh, But we'll just say at this point until we get back to that, he was a self-imposed one-term president. He refused to run for a second term, so he spent his four years there in D.C., uh, and then he came back to Fremont in retirement. Um, did a lot of things such as run some education funds. He um, was the president of the board, Ohio State University, uh, and he did all of that uh, until he died in 1893. Uh, he was preceded in death by his wife, Lucy, in 1889. But all in total, they had eight children. Uh, three of them, however, died before the age of two. So they had five who grew into adulthood. Only one of them was a girl.
0: So, that is a <laughs> wonderful life of service, and certainly <laughs> yeah. uh, a life befitting a very dedicated Odd Fellow. So, where Odd Fellowship comes in on this timeline is when he moved to Fremont or Upper Sandusky at the time. Uh, that's when he was first introduced to Odd Fellowship. Yeah. And as a lot of professionals did at the time, they needed a way to interact with the community. And oftentimes the way that happened was in a fraternal setting. So if you're looking for more white collar connections, you want to ingratiate yourself with the community of bankers, merchants, et cetera, you'd go join the Freemasons at that time. Well, Brother Rudd being of the uh, common man variety, he went to the Oddfellows and he absolutely loved it. From what we know now, he was a very committed odd fellow. He spent a a lot of time, was very active in Crawford Lodge, uh, which was the lodge that used to be there in Fremont, Ohio. But he really got involved when he moved to Cincinnati because he was frequently visiting his own lodge. He would make visitations to other lodges in town. And that was really where his interest in Odd Fellowship peaked. Uh, A little later than that, uh, you talked about his Civil War service when he was defending Ohio against West Virginia. Um, William McKinley was in the unit that he was commanding, and McKinley saw the, the way that Odd Fellows who were in service together we uh, were very fraternal towards one another. And McKinley talked to Hayes and he said, you know, I would really like to be a part of this as well. And so McKinley had his application for the Odd Fellows signed by Hayes, the only case in which one U.S. president signed the application of another to join the Odd Fellows which is pretty remarkable that that, that would uh, happen. And uh, maybe next year for President's Day, we'll do a special William McKinley episode. And then, of course, the the other great story about Hayes and the Odd Fellows is 1881, after he's completed his term as president. At the time, Odd Fellow Lodges met every single week, and they had six-month terms of office. So by the time he got moved back to Fremont Ohio and everything was kind of settled down he says oh it's lodge night tonight i'll i'll go to lodge and so he goes down to the lodge hall and it was the night they were doing nominations for officers for the coming term he shows up and everybody immediately says the president of the united states is here we have to elect him noble grand and hayes says oh brothers that's absolutely not necessary. I've completed my time in office. I I have no interest in presiding over the lodge for the next six months. They wouldn't hear of it. It was a unanimous vote. So Hayes served as noble grand of Crawford Lodge. I think it was number 36 uh, in 1881 because he was a former president of the United States. They how could they not elect him noble grand?
2: Yeah. It, I read a little uh, story about that and how he refused a few times and they just kept badgering him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Until he relented.
0: Which I think to me, knowing what I do about Hayes, that seems very on brand for him, not wanting to come in and take over and just say, okay. Um, I'm the leader now. I'm in charge. This is what we're going to do. Yeah, very much so. So looking at the narrative, um, anyone who knows anything about Hayes in popular culture usually gets everything wrong. So they think he was a a, a crooked and corrupt politician who made this very um, sort of a self- serving deal to end reconstruction and put himself in the presidency, even though he lost the popular vote. So let's let's talk about sort of the beginnings of his political career. You talked about being an attorney in Cincinnati and defending slaves who had escaped to Ohio. Um, What kind of impact did that have on him and how did he view his role in things? Yeah. You know, that's
2: one of the things that I really focus my research on in particular is this evolution that Hayes underwent. Um, it's, it's rather, um, I guess an amazing turnaround that once he gets to Cincinnati, he's such an adamant defender of, uh, fugitives Uh, up until that point, uh, his uncle Sardis, who was his father figure, one thing I didn't throw into that quick bio is Rutherford never knew his dad. His dad died before he was born. So when he was born, you know, his wa- his mom was already a widow and he was being raised by her with a lot of financial support by her younger brother, Sardis. So we don't know what kind of uh, paternal influence Rutherford uh, Hayes, his dad, Rutherford Hayes, <laughs> would have yeah. had on him. Uh, And we also don't know what sort of influence his older brother could have had on him. He had an older brother named Lorenzo who uh, fell into ice while he was ice skating and drowned. Uh, So he would have had a brother about uh, six years older than him. He could have also been a rather important influence on his life. Uh, That was taken from him. It really all fell down to Sardis. And Sardis was a very savvy businessman. Uh, part of the reason why he ended up in lower Sandusky or in later Fremont was it was right there on the, on the Sandusky river. And he opened up a general store there. He was involved in exporting and importing goods. He opened up the first bank in Fremont. He just made, he made tons of money <laughs> and uh, Hayes um was not the businessman Sardis was, but Sardis uh, really uh, influenced Hayes in all things, including uh, politics. And Sardis was a Whig at the time, um, but he was a very different Whig than the, sorry, the Birchards that remained in Vermont. And those Birchards in Vermont were very much abolitionists. um, And Sardis was not. And so Sardis uh, really influenced Hayes to not only not care too much about slavery, but to also sort of make fun of abolitionists. Um, Sardis wrote very specifically in a letter that he does despise abolitionists. And I think that really uh, seeps into Hayes's beliefs. Uh, Hayes, when he makes a trip down to Texas to visit his friend Guy Brian, he comes across slavery for the first time. And the first thing he does is he shakes hands with, with a slave whom he mistakes for Guy's stepbrother. Uh, because this slave was most likely the result of a relationship between the slave owner and a slave woman. Um, And Hayes never condemns it. He makes it very clear in his journal that he understands what this is, but he never condemns it. Um, So it's a rather amazing turnaround by the 1850s. Not only is he... um, defending fugitive slaves but he's writing rather adamantly in his journal against slavery so a big reason why there's this switch is because of what's going on politically in the u.s you know that movement towards the after the fugitive slave law and the kickback from the north against that sort of law and the, the fight between the north and the south but from there on hayes was a defender of 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 uh, ending slavery. Uh, later on in life, you know, when he's um, about sixty nine years old, he writes. He's he's interviewed by an individual named Wilbur Siebert, who is writing this big, uh, history of the underground railroad. And he asks Hayes how much action he had in the underground railroad. And Hayes said, well, I think I was involved in 30 to 40 cases, um, or I had that had caught my wind. He said only three or four of them actually came to the mind of the public, but I was very active. I, who knows, you know, he's 69 years old. He's probably at some level, Mm -hmm. you know, talking, you know, thinking nostalgically about his past. It's hard to know if 30 to 40 is true or not, but he does. Definitely was uh, active um, with that those group of individuals that were so prominent in Ohio at the time, like Salmon and Chase and Levi Coffin and, um, and John Joliffe and some of the big names in the abolitionist movement at the time. So it's pretty amazing. I forget your initial
0: question. I rambled on so long, but I. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that that was actually a really good answer for it, because mm-hmm. I think in some ways that parallels Abraham Lincoln. If you go back and look at his early days as a Midwestern lawyer out in Illinois, um, you know, he was not strongly in favor or against slavery necessarily, but as time went on and he had more experiences, he realized just what a huge problem it was. And he eventually learned his way to what we would maybe consider the right side of history.
2: Yeah, yeah, and Lincoln, um, you know, as a lawyer, like you pointed out as well, actually, def- with in defense of the slave owners trying to re- retrieve their slaves. So yeah, it's rather, yeah,
0: <laughs> that's one of those parts of history that we just conveniently leave out because mm-hmm. Lincoln himself. Not to go on too much of a tangent, one of the things that distinguished his presidency against his predecessors is that Lincoln was not afraid to just tear up the constitution and say, no, we're in a time of war. That doesn't mean what everybody says it means. I, we can go in and punish the Southern states for disobeying the federal government and constitutional history before that was basically the idea that states came into the union voluntarily. And if it suited them, they could leave voluntarily and no one could do anything about it. And Lincoln said, Oh Yeah you know watch me I'll show you what is going to happen if they try and pull that and he did and he um who was the supreme court justice at that time Roger Taney Taney yeah you know. yeah um he he basically said no you're you're doing everything <laughs> wrong that's not how you're supposed to use the constitution and lincoln said yeah where is your army Uh, what are you going to do to stop me i'm the president and i'm running this war and that's that and for anyone who has an interest in constitutional scholarship um noah feldman who's a great constitutional scholar uh, i think he's at duke university uh he did a, a couple of podcast episodes about lincoln and the constitution and how he completely violated everything a habeas corpus didn't care just did whatever he wanted but because he fought the south ended slavery won the war and put the country back together we forgive all of the constitutional abuses and we forgive all of that stuff that happened before we forgive the fact that lincoln started out defending slave owners when he was an illinois attorney you know we forget about that stuff because we look at the end product and say well that was okay he he was completely fine because he made everything work.
3: Well, I think we have to also say it's because he was killed. A- absolutely. Uh, his own party objected to much of what he was doing, which was a more uh, reconciliatory approach to reconstruction. Uh, with the states that he started to reconstruct before the war was even over. And I think that uh, his party was very upset with him and had he stayed In office the whole time he probably would have had as many tangles with them as his successor johnson did yeah i
0: martyrdom does a lot for your legacy (laughs) because it can never be bad it's like hank williams you know he died at age 29 we never got to see the old fat hank williams like we did the old fat elvis (laughs) so it's easy to say well he was the greatest songwriter in country music history he will never be exceeded because he died at 29 and i think you're right about saying lincoln was greatly enhanced because he was cut down early in life imagine how we would remember james garfield If he had served, you know, maybe two or three years of his term before being shot by some moron who wanted a patronage job. I think this gives us a a good entry into talking about Hayes and his involvement in the Civil War since we seem to be there. Okay. So what did he do?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is, um, you know, one of the it was funny that I guess just random that. Um, I came across a, um, an obituary that was written about Hayes. I was doing some research and it was something that popped up in one of the files. And, and, um, it was in a local paper in there in Fremont that he died in. Um, and it, it was a weird article that kind of talked about all of the things that he kind of just lucked into. He wasn't particularly great at anything. <laughs> it, was a, it was an interesting obituary that they, and I'm kind of wondering if it was sort of someone who uh, politically was not a fan of Hayes. But, <laughs> um, but it, it is kind of interesting to think about it because, you know, in the Civil War, he does jump in um, or, or as, as soon as he feels that he, the call is there for him. Um, and he goes uh, into um, training in Delo- uh, down in Delaware, Ohio, in the Columbus area, and then um, and uh, becomes uh, a, a major. You know, he's a major right off. He and uh, Stanley Matthews joined the Twenty Third Ohio Volunteer Infantry together, as you c- correctly identified. William McKinley's a part of that as well. Uh, Stanley Matthews eventually falls out, uh, but Hayes sticks with it. You know, and and they're dispatched over to West Virginia. Um, At the time, it might have been something of importance. You know, here's West Virginia that juts up there in between um, uh, Pennsylvania and Ohio. Um, It's still a part of the South because it's just Western Virginia at the time. It's still Mm -hmm. part of the of the Southern state. And you um, can't
0: really trust the people from West Virginia. I mean, yeah. you never know. The Ohio River is not that wide. <laughs> I, no, I, I'm kidding. I say that because Mike is the grand secretary of West Virginia. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Well, I yeah, thought but you are talking
3: about in... Northern West Virginia. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> not, not yeah. Charleston, where you're at. That is the cosmopolitan hub of West Virginia. <laughs>
2: Well, you know, when you started to talk, I thought you were referencing the fact that, you know, it was so full of what were called bushwhackers, you know, these guys that were just, uh, you know, attacking the troops, you know, you couldn't tell if these individuals were going to be, um, friendly or not. Uh, Hayes has a rather interesting way of, of describing bushwhackers. You know, he'd, he'd never been into this kind of country before and he was a little taken aback by it, but you know, West Virginia ended up not being a theater of much importance, especially by 1863, once they've completely seceded, uh, from, within <laughs> Virginia, you know, seceded, uh, from the seceded state, um, and becomes its own state. And so, you know, all of Hayes's major battles take place, not in West Virginia, but when he's called in to do something else uh and there he was called into uh when lee had decided to, to to make his trek into maryland uh hoping to take the fight to the north uh his his regiment was called in to to uh take care of that and of course he is shot at south mountain and that's his most uh um, uh, dangerous, I guess, wound uh, matter of fact, if you ever make it to our museum, in my opinion, it's the best artifact we have there. And it's the jacket he was wearing when he was shot. So you can see the bullet hole. You can see the rip that was, uh, um, made by on his sleeve to, to go there and fix his arm and get the bullet out. Uh, pretty interesting, but he laid there on the field for a while and what's interesting about that is that one he was you know wounded very severely but two that this is right before Antietam and if you know Antietam that's the you know single bloodiest day in civil war history yeah, yeah. and Hayes in a way may have been lucky that he was shot on the way there because he wasn't a part of that battle um but uh, later on as i i believe i said in the intro i can't remember if it was in the intro or before we were recording but the most important uh battles he was in was in the shenandoah valley there at the end um and he was um at that point he was a full colonel uh he was operating by the end of the campaign as a brigadier general but he wouldn't get that uh, official uh title until afterwards but he fought in uh, the third battle of winchester and then into fisher's hill and cedar creek and those three battles were the decisive battles that defeated early as you Jubal early as he was attempting to uh, take the battle into the north perhaps in the same way sherman was doing into the south um, obviously early was not as successful uh, a big part of that was that um, grant had sent his man up there which was philip sheridan and hayes was fighting underneath george crook um, and they were um, helping uh, that effort uh, his most um glorious moment was at the third battle of Winchester when he was told to, um, uh, take out, uh, the, the extreme, uh, it would have been the extreme left flank of the Confederates. Um, and he had to, uh, wade through what was called red bud run, which was a part of the Opecan Creek, um, you know, area. And supposedly he writes in his journal and others have confirmed, uh, his troops were not willing to go through the, the boggy, creek because they were they didn't think they could get across and hayes decided the only way he was going to get his troops across is if he went first and they would follow Uh, he gets about halfway through with his horse his horse gets stuck so he has to get off jumps off the horse crawls all the way to the other side uh, in the midst of fire uh, somehow makes it across without being shot uh, looks up and realizes he's the only one on the other side. Uh, but his men are in the Creek at this point, at least and making an attempt. Uh, and at that point he does get his troops across and they, uh, complete their objective. And, uh, Philip Sheridan supposedly said that a big reason they won that battle that day was because of Hayes's effort. So that was his big, uh, glorious moment in the war. Uh, but in reality, as that obituary probably pointed out. He wasn't one of the major uh, figures, the big names in the Civil War. He wouldn't be remembered for uh, the, in the names like Grant and Sheridan and Sherman, but he was uh, nonetheless very active and spent all four years.
3: I, I do think it's funny though. He was a, a fan of, of General Crook and, and named the middle name of his son was born there at the end of the war, Crook, which may not have been the best choice, given what happened later on in the election, but we'll get to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <I'll wait> till-
0: <laughs> now that, that was excellent radio right there, Mike. Teasing <laughs> an Upcoming feature. Good job.
1: So uh, during, during the war, um, he was not just doing the battle stuff. He was still politically active, right? Um, yeah.
2: Yeah, funny you bring that up. That's right at that moment, you know, right in the Shenandoah Valley. He has this friend um, who doesn't really get a lot of credit. Um, his name's William Henry Smith, and he's um, a journalist. He's uh, eventually becomes the editor of the Western Associated Press, and at nearly every, well, every stage of President Hayes's career, William Henry Smith is the one who's sitting there egging him on. He's the one who's pushing him forward in all these things. William Henry Smith, uh, writes Hayes in 1864. And he says, I'm going to run you for Congress in the Cincinnati area. Hayes. It was like this softball pitch to Hayes and Hayes cranked it out of the park with his response. And he writes in there with his little phrase. He says, uh, any individual, I, I don't have the exact wording here. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he says any individual who would leave, Uh, the battlefield in order to campaign for a seat in Congress ought to be scalped Um, and that was his campaign pitch that was it he didn't leave the battle he fought all three battles that we talked about after writing that phrase Uh, but William Henry Smith nonetheless took that line and he ran it everywhere (laughs) so Hayes wins this election while he's still um, there in the battlefield and, and William Henry Smith will pop Pop up at every other point in his political career as well, uh, but yeah, he becomes congressman while he's still fighting.
0: How exactly did that work um, to be a member of Congress while he was on the battlefield <laughs> leading troops? Well, he he wins an election while he's
2: there and in, in the still enlisted, but he it just you know because of the the war ends the next year, he actually wasn't required to re- report to Congress until the war had already been over
0: and he was mustered out that was convenient <laughs> so how did everything go for him while he was in congress that was 1865 correct
2: yeah he would have been in congress some uh well he served two one and a half terms three years because uh he does get reelected. but you know kind of like what we we talked about earlier his his he's not necessarily gun ho on all of this stuff you know he'd spent 4 years in the civil war with only a few breaks at home his wife would spend some time in the winter camps you know congress didn't require him to be in dc all year round but he's away from home for for a long stretches of time here for um, you know uh, 7 years straight <clears throat> But while he's so he quits basically halfway through his second term and goes back and becomes governor. But while he's congressman for those three years, he's um what we'll call a sympathetic vote for the radical Republicans. And this was a group of individuals. If you've seen uh maybe that Lincoln movie that came out a while ago with uh um with uh, Tommy Lee Jones as as Thaddeus Stevens, uh these were these guys who were very um adamant to continue to attack uh the south basically (laughs) to ensure (laughs) to ensure that there were harsh uh harsh uh penalties for what the south had done including um of course the um, voting rights for black uh, men in particular and uh for other concessions and civil rights acts and hayes was a sympathetic vote for all of that he wasn't uh actively, uh, vocal member of Congress at the time. Um, he was most interested in the fact that he was a part of a joint committee on the library there. So he was a bit of a nerd, but he really, um, he really was, uh, what we'll call a sympathetic vote for all of that towards the end of the, of his term, he actually takes a tour of the South and jokes about how he was, interact with these Southern leaders and tell them uh, his Northern views. And they would laugh and give him his Southern views. Um, He wrote that he was um, interested in what an outsider thought of him because he was, he was writing a friend that says, I think I'm, Mm. I think I'm too deep into the radical Republican world. I need to know, I need a cool outside opinion of me. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, and then when he runs for governor in his first term, you can see it in his stump speeches He's very much a radical Republican calling uh, strongly for black suffrage and for all of the all of those reconstruction uh, movements for the radicals.
3: I'm just kind of trying to wrap my head around how this political transformation took place, because he really wasn't. I mean, while he did have a transformation in his heart about the issue of issues of slavery and uh, was active in that. At the same time, he was from an area that was not particularly heavily Union-sympathizing early in the war, and even later still had a, a strong economic tie somewhat um, to the South, as, as far as I, I'm aware. So how did that impact his politics that he decided to, to be this radical in in supporting uh, the reconstruction acts and things that would have potentially harmed commerce out of ohio Hmm. Hmm.
2: well i don't i i think maybe i would need a little more clarity on 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 some of your points but uh, maybe i can get to, to this a little bit in that um while he's in uh cincinnati uh, I, th- I, I think one of the one, and honestly, maybe I should, maybe I, uh, a little bit of research in what the odd fellows, what they're influencing him on, but, uh, he's a part of what's called the Cincinnati literary club there. It's a very elite club. There's only about a hundred members. Uh, he's really rubbing shoulders with individuals who are thinking very deeply about the issues at the time. Um, and as a lawyer, he's interacting closely with Sam and chase, There's this funny uh, quote. The first time he talks about Sam and Chase, he he just basically said, he writes, he's writing as Sam and Chase apparently is talking. And he says, yeah, Sam and Chase is down there making a speech. It's very boring. You know, he's (laughs) kind (laughs) of, he's he's not into Sam and Chase at all, but he ends up really liking him. Um, You know, he's interacting with these, with these um, individuals who are uh, active abolitionists. um, And he's becoming a sympathetic uh, uh, to that, uh, when he's in the civil war, um, this is a moment when, you know, we talk about Hayes being sort of reserved, never really showing a lot of emotion. He was one of the most emotionless individuals, uh, in the sense that I think he was, uh, very contemplative about the way he thought he was very stoic in his persona. Uh, but in the Civil War, you know, those four years, especially after he's interacting with fugitive slaves who were coming to the, uh, or, or sorry, contraband slaves, as they would be called, into his regiment, he's writing very thoroughly about how slavery is not just a moral problem, but it is the, the worst problem that America has to face. That the only way we can get through this war, he said, was to either in slavery or to um or to uh execute all all of the traitors i mean
0: (laughs) these are very emotional comments that you don't hear from him it sounds like his wartime experience was really one of the major catalysts for change in his opinion
2: i think so you know you get a bunch of individuals together who are fighting for a similar cause who um who are thinking about these things and some of not not all of them of course are 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 anti-slavery or are fighting for that issue but everyone's internalizing this in their own ways because they're constantly thinking about it and being um you know altering their lives for some sort of purpose and i think hayes does put he does internalize it that way um and when he gets to congress you can see he's a little bit I would say reserved. I wouldn't say he's like Thaddeus Stevens. He's not out there um, making these arguments in the way that those guys are. Uh, Matter of fact, he says some things that from a – well, uh, we'll say from a modern lens looking back, we would think, ooh, that's, that's scary, Hayes, that you would make that comment, because we know what would come later with Jim Crow laws, like with literacy tests and things. But Hayes makes this strong argument to himself and to those around him, strong in his mind, I should say, that, that we should do literacy tests. <laughs> it's not just about race, it's also about education. And he's making this argument that, you know, Black men, uh, sadly, have been in this place of, of, of uh, ser- a servitude for so long, they've been neglected their education, you know, and we need to get them up to speed before we give them all of these things. Uh, <laughs> he writes his friend Guy Brian down south, uh, who is the slave owner that I talked about earlier, and he says, you know, you may find here in the north a similar problem that you're experiencing in the south. You know, maybe black men are not educated yet because of their servitude. Well, we have here in the north a vast number of uneducated white people who cause us these kind of problems, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in his mind, education is this answer. And from a modern standpoint, that's a slippery slope with democracy. We wouldn't make that kind of argument, right? But, but Hayes um, is what well, I'm bringing that up basically to say that it's not as if Hayes is as we'll call it progressive perhaps as a lot of these other radical Republicans, but he uh, becomes a sympathetic vote for nearly all of the things they push for eventually.
0: And I think it also really shows his relationship with odd fellowship because one of the four principles of odd fellowship is to educate the orphan. And I think throughout his political career, he really showed that he understood the value and importance of education on a personal level, on an institutional level and on an overall societal level.
1: While he was doing all of these things, he was also somehow managed to shoehorn yet another thing in there, which is to be the governor of Ohio. And, <laughs> and not just once, not twice, but, but thrice. <laughs> so maybe uh, you could give a little bit of the kind of the short take on that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I kind of already led into it a little bit. I told you about how he runs that first term as governor. Um, you know, and, and at that time, they're also talking about the passage of, of the 15th Amendment as well. And, uh, and as governor, he's, he pushes for that, um, the passage of that. At the time, actually, Ohio, uh, a lot of Ohio citizens are trying to rescind the right for black men to vote in that state. He very adamantly speaks out against that and acts against that uh, from taking place. Um, uh, But as governor, um, after he settles in and some of these reconstruction issues are being um, sort of taking a second place to some other issues in Ohio, uh, he does move on to some other things. Uh, He's very a strong proponent for um, using the land grants to have the creation of what would become Ohio state university there in Columbus. So uh, if you ever go to the campus there and you see a Hayes hall, that's not named after Woody Hayes. That's named after Rutherford Hayes. Oh, Um, now, (laughs) now you've just
0: ruined it for thousands of college football fans. They're like, no, it was Woody Hayes. It did. It had to be Woody Hayes.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So he's the governor that, that, that got that institution started. Um, he he was um you know an an advocate of prison reform um but in the end you know what what he writes is that it seems as governor the most important thing i do is put my signature on the top of very fancy pieces of paper uh (laughs) so he kind of makes a joke about perhaps some of the insignificance of the job itself but um you know he was um uh uh, kind of mirrors something in particular uh, that mirrors is his action on mine workers that went on strike, um, and in, in Ohio, uh, which would mirror a, a railroad strike that occurs in the first year of his presidency. Uh, Ooh, buddy, that's another good.
1: Piece. Yeah. <laughs> we've got to do conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, but you know that was one of the issues he had to deal with and and of course if you, you you know as i think mike was kind of alluding to maybe a little bit earlier uh hayes does tend to go on the side of business a little bit over the worker although in his mind he doesn't think he's doing it but he clearly has a little bit of a bias there um and uh that's what he does you know for four years um down in columbus and what i'll say is that he retires for a few years and my first, and this is, this is, um, you know, this is totally my interpretation here, but I feel like, uh, when he runs for that third term after that break and, and William Henry Smith again is the one who's telling him, you've got an outside shot at the presidency. He's the one egging him on once again. And Hayes um, makes this decision that I think is the first decision he makes. That is what we might, uh, Inner, or feel about modern politics and the way that we view modern politicians is he makes the decision to um, go after uh, parochial schools, uh, again, uh, about uh, with, uh, with uh, the, the rights that uh, Catholics perhaps have um, for federal, for, for state money for their parochial schools. And what he's doing there is he's purposely... Um, deciding that he's going to not care about the Catholic vote so that he can get the German vote. Um, And he's being very calculated on this. Um, And whether that was the deciding factor or not, William Henry Smith knew, Hayes knew. Matter of fact, William McKinley knew, because William McKinley's writing Hayes to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, And they all knew that not only was this a state issue, But once he was running for president, this would look good for him in a a general election as well. So uh, this is that first moment, in my my opinion, where he's really playing politics in the way that he's going about his his uh, his policies uh, to win some votes at the sake of others.
3: Sorry, that's where that question came in that I had about his time in Congress, which in many ways seems incongruous to his early life, and then his time as governor and president, when you know, his main focus is often on having stability, having you know, the, the economy running well, sound money, uh, not having strikes, not having disruptions, having a government that's accountable with, this, with civil service, and, and all of that. That's why I wondered about his time in Congress, because his time in Congress, he didn't seem to be as much the haze that he was before and after that.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think I gen, I genuinely think that era, that decade of the 1860s, is an anomaly uh, for Hayes's um, uh, outlook on life. You know, and I think he was, you know, his he was put in an environment where he those those sort of innate emotions would come out. You know, and and it came out on on I think history would say on the right side of the issue, uh, but. You're right. I think before the 1860s and after the 1860s, he's a little bit, he's much more conservative in his approach, much more contemplative in his approach uh, that, yeah, you know, I agree with you. The 60s were an anomaly.
0: <clears throat> and you also mentioned how he made a very calculated effort to try and curb the uh, the access to resources of parochial schools, which essentially set him up as in a way, anti-Catholic, which was a very common thread in sort of the nativist American history. Um, Anyone who's familiar with various uh, other fraternal orders knows that there were frequently frictions between the Catholic Church and fraternal groups, specifically the Masons. You know, the Catholic Church never really particularly liked the Masons, uh, but the Masons never really had a problem with the Catholic church or anything like that. There were some definite nativist groups that were very much anti-Catholic, even to the point that uh, the revival of the KKK that came in the 1920s was very anti-Catholic because at the time it was viewed as very anti-American to be Catholic. And that. You know that was not at all unusual. Louisville in the 1840s, there were nativist riots against the influx of Catholics moving there, and of course, uh, some of our great institutions of higher learning, Notre Dame, Boston College, they were founded because at the time Catholics didn't have the kind of opportunities for a higher education that they have now, and so that was a, sort of a very calculated political choice that hayes made to be sort of gently anti-catholic in that way yeah and it, it comes out um as you guys probably
2: know in the next elections you know to with uh what's what was called a Rum, romanism and rebellion you know as they would re- they would reference the the right wing uh, or sorry the, the democratic party uh as being the, the party of alcohol and roman catholicism and and of course the confederate rebellion um so you know Hayes Hayes was not necessarily um uh being a unique republican uh, no. by, by, <laughs> but nonetheless he does become that sort of political uh, beast
0: well, before we jump headlong into the election of 1876, let's take a quick break. We will listen to a message from our sponsor, Pig and a Pug Bath Stuff, and then after that, we will get our shout out. And uh, Ainsley, I, I've heard this is another lodge kind of close to you,
1: so I bet you're excited <laughs> about this one. Yeah, Illinois is uh, been listening in, and they've been sending them in as well. Wonderful. We'll take a quick
0: break and then we'll be back with some more great, fascinating historical information with Dustin McLaughlin right after this.
4: Can I help you? Hello. Good afternoon, ma'am. I'm terribly sorry to have bothered you. My name is Kenneth Friendship. I'm pounding the pavement in your neighborhood asking people, just like yourself, about their household bath products. Would you mind sparing just a few minutes of your time to answer some mildly intrusive questions? It'll be real quick, I swear. Oh, I suppose... I was just about to start a marathon of are-you-being-served, but I guess anything for the greater good. Great. If you don't mind, I'll just jump right in. You do use cleaning products, don't you? Detergents, cleansers, soaps, balms, salves, things of that nature? Of course. Why, doesn't everyone? Nifty. Nifty. Can you tell me about your hand soaps, or are you part of the population that just has a piece of wet sandpaper next to the sink? Sandpaper? You know what? That's a common response. I'll also bet your hands have the texture of a painter's elbow. Yes? Let me make a suggestion. You know, a lot of your neighbors are using products by a company called Pig and a Pug. They're a company based in Missoula, Montana. You know, where they do all that fishing and that. I've never heard of it. That's fine. You can hop on the internet and look up Pig and a Pug on Etsy.com. You can get the goods there, too. Do you like witty product names? Who doesn't? You'll love their fall soap line this year. Bone Suds and Harmony, Better Call Fall, The Washing Dead. <laughs> Not even a whiff of a season and desist there. The Pumpkin Spice is your next-door neighbor's favorite. And between you and me, she's got the hands of a poet. That stuff must cost a fortune. <clears throat> you know, in life, you do get what you pay for. But if you use the code THANKYOU24 at checkout on Etsy, they will know that I sent you, and they're gonna knock off 24%. I heard she's got a weird thing about even numbers. I'll make sure to place two orders then. You won't regret it. Have a nice day. What a strange man. Oh, well, Captain Peacock is calling me. All right. And we
1: are back after our break with Pig and a Pug Bath stuff. And we have a Lodge shout out. And yeah. And if uh, you or your Lodge want to have your. Lodge considered for a Lodge shout out. Please email us at the numeral three links, oddcast at gmail.com, or you could DM us on Facebook or Instagram or wherever you, you know, find us on the internet, which is pretty much everywhere. Um, so for this shout out, it is for Palacky 630 in Brookfield, Illinois.
3: Woo! Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, uh, I know we have, um, quite a a few listeners up in the Chicago area. And I suspect some of them might be in Polacki 630 because they sent in a shout out and they've been doing a lot of uh, great work, um, promoting their lodge online on Facebook and uh, being active in coming out to do some of the bigger grand lodge events. So um, yeah, they're on the upswing. So shout out to Polacki 630. Good job, brothers and sisters. Okay, and we are back with Dustin McLaughlin from the Rutherford B. Hayes Museum and Library, or is it Library Museum? Library Museum Museum and Library. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so we, up to the break, we were leading up to his run for presidency and all the excitement that follows that. So this is the um, exciting part of the climactic story
0: (laughs) now i'm i'm sure on the heels of uh brother grant's presidency there was a very uh uneventful election followed by an orderly transition to the hayes administration right Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. What possibly could have gone wrong in the election of 1876?
3: Well, they at least had the really good campaign slogan of hurrah for Hayes in honest ways. You got to love that. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah. um, Is there a question in there, I guess? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, um, how is it that Hayes even wound up running for the presidency? Because before the break, yeah. You mentioned that he did a couple terms as governor of Ohio founded the Ohio state university. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then he retired back to um, beautiful Fremont, Ohio and said, all right, I'm done in politics. But then his buddy says, Hey, come on, you know, it's a, be governor again and maybe you'll get a <laughs> shot at being president. And so he yeah. got that yeah. third term as governor.
2: He did. Yeah. And, and you're, Right, he was a what would you know a dark horse candidate. Um, the Republican convention that year, and and I'm sure you guys, and I'm sure your listeners know, it's a very different ball game back then than it is now, and how we nominate our our, our candidates. Um, at the time, you know, you, the states would send their delegates to one convention hall, and they would just duke it out until they came came out with somebody on top. Um, and they had that in Cincinnati that year in 1876. And the individual who was the most likely to walk away with it was James Blaine. Uh, Blaine was a you know an active uh, member of, of of Congress for a long time. Um, he um, made quite a bit of a name for himself there at the end. He started to play ball a little bit more thoroughly with the radical uh, element as well, so he could win their vote over as uh, too. Uh, but really, in addition to sort of building up his his support he makes mistakes and he also gets individuals to not like him Uh, the most popular of these would be a guy named roscoe conkling from new york Uh, ah yes uh, roscoe (laughs) conkling yeah
0: the spoiler of
2: all Uh, late 19th century politics in america (laughs) and you know he 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 probably felt really good about himself when he said that Roscoe Conkling had a Turkey gobbler strut uh, (laughs) and made fun of him. (laughs) Uh, And so Conkling of course uh, did not like that. Um, You know, Conkling was not the type who was going to win the nomination, but he had enough support to where he could, like you said, spoil it for Blaine. Um, And he had enough supporters to where Blaine could not get enough support to have enough delegates to have enough delegates to to become the nominee and so we went through a number of ballots um, where everything was staying the same um, but on the sixth ballot you see a big jump up for rutherford b hayes uh, there were other guys out there there was benjamin bristow who would have been the strong civil service reform candidate. you had oliver p morton from indiana who would have been your radical republican candidate uh, you had some other, go- you had another governor named Heart Ramp from Pennsylvania, who could have been a favorite son governor as well. Uh, but it really goes down to Hayes. Um, and, you know, we've talked about the things that put him in that position. You know, he was a Civil War uh, soldier for four years, uh, governor, congressman. He had all of the credentials that you needed to be a candidate for president. But the thing that really puts him over the top is the fact that he's from Ohio. You know, here we have three. Uh, we're at this moment in American history where there are three states that, this, that these parties are vying for. You know, the three swing states at the time are New York, Ohio, and Indiana. And Ohio and New York are the biggest of the, th- of the three because they have more electoral votes. Um, so here was a candidate who, was, who had all the credentials and he could win you one of those big states. Uh, so on the sixth ballot, you see a jump. And with that jump, uh, there was enough attention to him that on the seventh ballot, he gets enough votes to become the nominee. Um, the thing that you'll notice if you look at the vote counts is it's not as if Blaine votes, Blaine's voting goes down. He's goes up with Hayes. Hayes just skyrockets. So this is a rather pedantic argument, but some people will say that Hayes is a compromise candidate. Uh, that comes out of that between you know Blaine supporters or Conkling supporters. That's not the case at all. Blaine supporters do not compromise. It's the anti anti Blaine Conkling wing that says we hate Blaine so much. Let's go for this <laughs> unknown guy. Yeah, <laughs> and so they all throw their weight behind Hayes, not really knowing what he was going to do. Uh, Conkling would be very disappointed, of course, because Hayes comes out very strongly as a civil service reformer. Uh, and that is the exact opposite of Roscoe Conklin and Conklin would refuse um, it, Well, at the very end, he does a little um, last minute campaigning, but for the most part, he refuses to even help Hayes get elected. So,
0: <clears throat> yeah, Roscoe Conkling pops up again uh, in the story of Garfield and Chester Allen Arthur. And, yeah, yeah. you know, he he was connected to Tammany Hall and the whole graft that was running new york city at the time and that roscoe conkling is quite the fascinating 19th century american historical figure (laughs) so uh hayes gets the republican nomination who is the democratic candidate uh it's
2: a guy named samuel tilden and you pointed out the uh the three swing states well he's from new york so they know what they're doing (laughs) yeah they're trying to get New York and he, he, he was a civil service reformer as well. Matter of fact, there'd be very little to separate Hayes and Tilden as far as their policies. And he was a guy speaking of, of, of Tammany hall, he's going after uh, boss Tweed um, and um, as a lawyer. So he has those, he has that after it, it's a little scandalous as well. He seemed to like be in bed with Tweed until he decided not to be, you know, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, he goes after Tweed and he um, really, um, jumps to the top in popularity for his civil service reform chops uh but yeah he's from new york uh his his vice presidential candidate got be a guy named thomas Hendricks, who's from indiana he's, and is also an odd president. fellow <laughs> oh really great
0: yeah, thomas Hendricks yeah. was an odd
1: fellow wonderful so we
0: we've actually done better with vice presidents than presidents. <laughs> well, uh, he, does, he he's vice president with cleveland right he, he gets it
2: again I
0: I think so. Yeah, Yeah. Hendricks ran with Cleveland uh, Skylar Colfax, who was vice president with Grant for a term. Okay, Uh, he was an Odd Fellow and uh, wrote the Rebecca degree of Odd Fellowship. So, and uh, probably the most obscure of the Odd Fellow (laughs) vice presidents was uh, Garner, uh, Cactus Jack Garner, who was under uh, Franklin Roosevelt for the first term. (laughs) I think that's the only. One of the few times that uh, both a president and vice president were Odd Fellows, because I know Grant and Colfax were both Odd Fellows, but Colfax only got one term. He he started out his career very well, but Skylar Colfax eh, kind of got uh, off into the self-dealing there a little bit. So he's, <laughs> we also don't talk too much about Skylar Colfax, uh, except when we're referring to the Rebecca degree of Odd Fellowship. <laughs> <laughs> So the campaign, uh, how'd that go?
2: (laughs) Well, the campaign itself is rather uneventful, actually. It's it's, um, Rutherford, uh, and like I mentioned, Tilden and Hayes have very uh, similar profiles and what they're they're, um, arguing for or calling for. Um, The one thing that would, um, Hayes is a little bit vague on, although in his nomination letter, he refers to the importance of, um, honest local self-government, which is a preliminary call that those states that had been um, propped up potentially by federal intrusions, um, specifically as, uh, you know, specifically in Louisiana and some other uh, where there seemed to be constant, inner warfare over who's going to control these state houses uh, between the republicans and the democrats and grant had to go in a few times seemingly on the right side of democracy uh, to uphold the republican governments there Uh, but it seemed as if public opinion was beginning to be uh, uh, disintegrating on the desire for federal's to continue to move into those state governments uh and in and in, in intervening uh but so he calls for this um lo- honest and capable local self-government is how he words it um he he's running on the issue of civil service reform as as I said um, and so when you get this uh, civil service reformer from New York, who is a Democrat and obviously is interested in self-government throughout the South, there's not a whole lot that separates. them. one of the issues that's real big is the gold standard, but both, both Tilden and Hayes are advocates of the gold standard. Hendricks would be a silver guy, so he was kind of a weird addition for the, uh, for the Tilden ticket. Um, but um, not a lot to, to separate them. Hayes would, uh, this, is, this is the time where candidates did not actively campaign, but in his letters as he's writing around, he's saying, really, the only thing that separates us is the issue of the Civil War. So we need to keep uh, waving that bloody shirt, um, which later on he would say is not the right avenue, but James Garfield would go all in on. So he would lose that argument anyway. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's how the campaigning went but you're probably more interested in how it turns out.
0: <laughs> well, let me just interject here. The reason I brought up the campaign yeah. is because Hayes and Tilden were not strongly differentiated candidates. No. They both sort of represented the sense at the time that the Civil War had been over for 10 years. We don't need to take so much of an intrusive interventionist uh stance with running things in the south at some point we have to wrap this up and we have to let those states return to functioning as states because the alternative is military rule over a big chunk of the country and that was something that did not appeal to many people and a lot of people were very upset with and i i think that's an important thing to keep in mind as we look at how contentious and difficult that election was,
2: yeah, uh, and we should also keep in mind how just constitutionally, uh, you know, problematic it is. You know, these southern states are being read. well, readmitted is the word I'll use, although that's complicated. Comp, uh into the union um
4: reintegrated
2: (laughs) reintegrated there you go and as they're reintegrated you know of course they're they're getting all of their congressional seats back they're getting their state sovereignty back so the continued um a presence of federal troops in those states uh was constitutionally problematic as well and that was something that hayes was very keyed into
0: (laughs) yeah because we do have uh which amendment would it be number four that says um you know, the the military is basically not for domestic things. And so if we're using the military for domestic things, like keeping the peace and enforcing federal law in certain states, that's a constitutional violation. And I think in any other context, people would be horrified at the thought of the United States military being used to direct policy in a state. It's like, if I sent the military uh, down to the state of Oregon to just eliminate the University of Oregon, um, people would be very upset about that. I mean, it would be good for the country overall, but people would be very upset about it. And we just lost our three listeners in Oregon. Sorry about that, guys. But it's an absurd example, but it's an example that I think helps people to understand that reconstruction And the military occupation, the southern states were grouped into military departments that were ruled like we did in Germany in the late 1940s, saying this is a military occupation zone with a military government, which will be in charge of running things, which is the complete opposite of what it says in the Constitution that the military should be doing. So (laughs) with with that background... (laughs) I'm sure the election of 1876 was very easy. (laughs) Nobody disputed it. Um, Nobody said the election has been stolen, and everything proceeded towards an orderly inauguration in 1877. Right? Yeah, uh, I know. Well, you know, funny,
2: initially, it might have been that way. Um, The the returns were coming in, um, and Hayes uh, was having a a party of sorts. He was in Columbus at the time as governor, and seeing those returns come in, um, and decided that he had lost. <laughs> he went to bed. Uh, he writes in his journal. You know, if we want to continue perhaps with this issue of of uh, race and civil rights, you know, he and he and Lucy write in there, or he writes in his journal as he's talking to Lucy that. They both agreed that the big tragedy of this was not their loss, but what was going to happen for um, the black men and women in the South as as Reconstruction clearly is coming to an end with a Tilden presidency. And um, and so uh, that's how he goes to bed. He wakes up the next day. There are actually reporters talking to him speculating well maybe you've won you know we don't know what's going on in these three states and it's really tied into gambling and when he said he, he's, he's so like concerned about people losing their money he's basically saying don't bet that i've won this race i've clearly lost you know you, you don't i'm 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 not the next president uh but one thing that he's not particularly clued in on perhaps quite yet is that and this is a debate that historians have gone through but they've seemed to have settled upon uh, ex-General uh, uh, Sickles, uh, leaving and looking at the returns, uh, are looking at the returns and realizing that it was too close to call in those three Southern states that still had Republican governors, uh, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Florida. And he looked at it and he said, if we can get them to stop their returns, to, to not send them in yet, not to, to not uh, certify them, so that we can look at those returns before we move forward. We might still have a chance because if Hayes wins all three of those, he's going to have enough votes to win by one. Uh, So they do that. He supposedly wakes up the chair of the Republican party, uh, Chandler. Chandler sends off telegrams to the South, hold your returns, hold your returns. And they do that. Um, And this sparks a battle that takes place for months over these three states and um as uh as as toby points out um oregon gets involved there for a quick minute as well uh that's that's a whole other issue that we can (laughs) talk about too but uh the three big states that are that are um that are problematic
0: of course are those three southern states it's just a good thing that florida never caused any more electoral problems after <laughs> that <laughs> that <Yeah. laughs> that would really be a mistake of american history to allow that again
2: yeah you know it, the the issue, so so here's the so here's what's going on <clears throat> so the those three states are really interesting uh, because they are run by Republican governors, that's the, that's the states where that would comply with the Republican Party asking to return, they'll hold the returns, right? But the real issue is, um, you know, popular vote-wise, Hayes, our count shows that Hayes loses this election by 300,000 votes, right? But as Ulysses S. Grant points out, as Hayes would concur at the time, we don't know what the actual outcome would have been you know, of course they're gonna go behind the returns as we're gonna talk about in a minute and talk and, and, and flip those three states for Hayes. But the reality is is that that election intimidation, the, the election, the, 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 the great onslaught of, of the white democratic party throughout the South preventing black men from voting as they had the legal right to do all throughout the South, even those states that didn't have Republican governors would have been a very different story on that popular vote count in the end but it was those three states that the republican party had the capacity to 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 deal with and that gets into constitutional and legal problems too so we don't want to just uh, absolve them as well you know there you talk about the means and the ends and what and what and do the means justify the ends but nonetheless there's some uh, there's some uh, uh, I don't know finagling as well in the vote counts as they get there.
0: So essentially, um, what what was the crisis that happened with this election? Because you mentioned Hayes woke up the next morning and, kind of like John F. Kennedy in 1960, he went to bed kind of thinking he'd lost. But then overnight magically all these democratic (laughs) votes appear in chicago joe (laughs) kennedy gets on the phone and says all right boys get us some more votes (laughs) and then next morning it looks like jfk is going to be the next president so um what happens with this election as it goes to the electoral college by the way worst college football program in american history (laughs) electoral college has never won a single game i mean not even against directional schools and that's that's just unforgettable so what happens this goes to the electoral college yeah Yeah, i'm
2: glad you pointed out um 1960 because i i'll I'll probably want to refer back to that at the end of this but not yet (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but um so yeah it goes down to those three states uh, the Democrats send their uh, supporter or their, uh, I guess, uh, delegates down there to look at those returns, as well as the Republicans. Um, they're going to go behind the returns now. South Carolina and Florida are very close, um, but South Carolina looked like it was going to be Hayes's anyway. Florida has some different issues. Louisiana is the one that's very uh, center stage here, not only because Hayes actually loses that count that comes in by thousands you know it's not as close as the other two but louisiana is the battleground that's been fighting for their elections for a long time in almost every election cycle louisiana has a problem so when the republicans and democrats go in there and they go behind the returns they're looking at well they're not counties there their parishes there they're looking behind the returns of these parishes <clears throat> and they're debating Okay, was there intimidation? Let's look at the returns. We see that there are making up numbers here precisely. Mm. Well, actually, in one case, this is barely close to true. We see that there are two thousand registered Republicans in this parish. There's one vote for Hayes. You know, mm. we see <laughs> we see in this other one that is an actual vote count. I think that's yeah. Lysiana, I believe. But there's these um, registered sounds like
3: Philadelphia.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and they see the return show that not only is the registered republicans here are high and the vote is low but they're also looking at previous elections in that parish and seeing well republicans got this many votes the previous election why are there so few this time they're going behind the re- they're going they're interviewing individuals they interview one of the most sensational interviews they had was with a Eli- with a woman named eliza pinkston who claimed that uh, white men uh, burst into her house killed her husband killed her baby threw her baby in a pond cut her all up and she had to crawl uh to 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 survive um, they only left her because they thought she had died but she hadn't um and so they they're they're hearing all of these stories and you know they do. They, the Republican party decides to simply throw out the returns in these counties where the vote, vote, where the votes are off and they're hearing these stories. Um, and they of course do enough of it to where Hayes comes out on top. Um, and so Hayes, um, according to the official certified returns that are sent back to Washington with a governor's signature, they all go to Hayes. Now, the democrats getting into oregon which i think is toby's favorite topic when we get there when we get there uh what happens there is one of the electors happens to have a position in a federal office which is illegal um so what the democratic party decides is a good answer to that is since they have a democratic governor he can appoint whichever elector he wants to fill in that spot it didn't matter that hayes won oregon outright you know it's just a matter of well i'll just put a guy who's going to vote for tilden here and that solves the whole issue because now who cares what happens in those three states tilden's going to win by one vote right um so that was obviously shut down but uh, that's how oregon gets into the topic but what happens is the um returns come in and not only does hayes get these certified returns but the democrats also send in their returns and they say tilden has won So we get into this constitutional issue that was brought very to the front of us, I guess, in 2021, uh, (laughs) with uh, whether or not the vice president can overturn an election, right? Whether the vice president can make a decision outright. And that was a decision, that was a discussion that they were having there. Now, at the time, the vice president uh, had died. So it was the president pro temp, Thomas Ferry, who would have been the one who would have been mike pence back then um and he was a republican and um rutherford hayes's argument was maybe similar to 2021 to some extent uh but he says look thomas ferry is the one who's going to make this decision he's got certified results right here in front of him with the governor's signature all he has to do is count the certified results Uh, democrats did not like that of course um so it was actually the guy who would become hayes's secretary of the navy um uh, mccrary george mccrary who came up with an idea of an electoral commission and i don't know how long i'm going here i'll try i'll try to cut some things out but basically what he, what it comes down to with this electoral commission is he comes up with a way to where there'll be five republican congressmen and five democratic congressmen who will then choose Four uh, Supreme Court justices. Um, the Democrats will choose two. The Republicans will choose two. So now we've got basically seven of each. And they the parties are choosing these guys. So they're only going to pick guys that are going to vote for them, right? So we're now deadlocked at seven. There's no way around it. And those two Supreme Court justices are basically going to pick the one guy who's going to make this decision. That's what it comes down to is finding one guy to make a darn decision. Um, and the Democrats love this idea. Because the guy that they think the Supreme Court's going to pick is a guy named David Davis. And David Davis was a Democrat who had um, support or was a supporter of Abraham Lincoln. So they thought he's clearly the most unbiased of the individuals available. Well, they vote for it. The Electoral Commission becomes a thing that's going to make this whole decision. But after the democrats vote for this in much higher numbers than the republicans because they think they have the upper hand without the electoral commission um, illinois decides to appoint david davis as a senator so david davis says i'm not a justice anymore i'm gonna be a senator i can't serve on the electoral college (laughs) so now the four justices have to pick the 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 only other perhaps unbiased individual his name was joseph bradley who was clearly a republican so when the electoral commission has these, uh, cert- these these returns in front of them, it's already an eight to seven vote. <clears throat> and for all three, and then Oregon too, four of the uh, arguments, the Republicans win each of those election, each of those determinations, eight to seven. <clears throat> and so Hayes looks as if, as if he's going to be president. Uh, maybe I should stop there and take a breath because that's when we get to a whole other issue here. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yes, I do think it's funny, though, because the, uh, the Democrats did themselves a little self-owned there um, by <laughs> deciding to, to influence that particular justice and give him an appointment to the Senate only up in their face when he couldn't be on their panel.
2: Yeah. And see, that's a big issue. That's a big sort of, uh, I guess, a historical debate. And I'm not going to weigh in on it here, uh, but I'll tell you that some argue that, you know, Republicans were just as thoughtful in getting Davis in that Senate spot uh, to get him out of the way. So there's a little bit of, a, of an argument there. And there's also an argument that the Illinois uh, just simply wasn't thinking about how that was going to affect the Electoral College when it happened. Uh, I don't know the answer, but there's a lot of argument on that.
0: <laughs> so that brings us to um, we've pretty much got uh, a decision looming here. And I, I might add a consistent problem with the Constitution that we keep going back and re-experiencing as a country is the method of choosing president and vice president. You look at the first couple elections, uh, George Washington, everybody loves him. I mean, he was such a great leader. They named a state after him. But then after that, it got into, OK, we're going to pick the the two top vote getters and they'll be president and vice president, which works great. Until you get a president and vice president who hate each other. And uh, that happened. And then you go even further into it and more problems. And, okay, well, we'll have these electors and they'll vote on behalf of the states because people don't directly elect the president, even though a lot of Americans think that we do. No, our states, as part of a constituent republic, elect a president to run the federal government on their behalf. And so that has become a a problem and an issue. And a lot of people say, like nowadays, they're like, why do 600,000 people in Wyoming get so many electoral votes when you've got more people in California than the entire nation of Canada and California only gets so many? But then again, all of the votes in California go to whichever party won the state and, you know, there's all kinds of complex questions about how the electoral process works and functions and how representative it is. And this 1876 election was a perfect example of the complete, total, utter breakdown of that system. So pick up the narrative where we left <laughs> on. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, you know, and I, I like that you've, you've um, uh, I guess, segued uh, in that way, uh, because I, I do, I'm, I'm going to end this with um, maybe, I don't, I don't want to say a cop-out mode. mode. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the historian for the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library Museum. So I think there's only so much uh, credence that a listener is going to give to me as far as where my bias may lie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but what I'll say is that, well, I'll tell you how I interpret this to visitors perhaps, or to, in my publications, when, when we get to that point, but what happens here is that, um, as we get to that end of the electoral commission's, uh, determination, and it looks as if Hayes is going to be president, the Democrats have one more uh, move up their sleeve, I guess they could just simply delay filibuster, stop the confirmation altogether. Um, Maybe, you know, as some historians have argued, their end game was that if, you know, inauguration day comes and goes and there's no president, this will get thrown into the House as and the House will decide, which would be to their advantage. Uh, we don't know if that was their end game so much as it just, we don't want Hayes to become president. We're going to do what we can. Uh, but a certain number of Democratic uh, legislators decided to just let, to just filibuster, to just stop. And it gets into this moment of absolute, um, I guess, drama, uh, because um, they're going alphabetically through these states. By the way, they've already gone through all of the contested states. They get to Vermont, which has uh-huh. no, you know, no problem, <laughs> no problem <laughs> in there. But the democratic, uh, a Democratic uh, congressman pops up and says, "No, stop! We've got, uh, we've got a, another return for Vermont that says Tilden won the state, which was total, you know." totally incorrect but it was just a matter of stopping things they Mm. hoped the electoral commission would get involved every time the electoral commission got involved by the way a complete recess days before they would make a determination before they came back so they thought well this is the best filibuster in the world it was the electoral (laughs) commission um you know of course the, the especially the republican congress was not having it uh they wanted to keep moving it was at this time that Hayes's supporters, his Ohio supporters, I have mentioned Stanley Matthews a few times. He's a part of this uh, guy named uh, Charles Foster, who was a uh, representative from Ohio. Um, James Garfield's actually involved in this. Um, they're, they're meeting with uh, Louisiana uh, Democrats and Henry Watterson as well, who's a famous Democratic journalist at the time. Um, and they're talking about okay, what's the outcome of this? You know, Hayes in his nomination letter says, honest and capable local self-government. You've got what you want with Hayes. Stop trying to forestall this. Uh, And the Louisiana Democrats are basically saying, well, we see that in his nomination letter, but we want an assurance that that that's really what he's going to do. And Stanley Matthews and Foster say, look, we've got the ear of Hayes. He's going to do this. We know. So they're really talking without talking to Hayes. They're only talking about things that they know as being close political allies with Hayes, going through the nomination letter. And so um, Louisiana apparently wants this in writing. Stanley Matthews provides this for them in writing. Um, And then they go back to Congress and they say, look, we've got here in writing assurances that Hayes is going to remove the troops that are surrounding uh, the state House is in Louisiana and South Carolina. He's going to end the last vestiges of Reconstruction. We should just le- we should just let him go in. Stop filibustering. So this is what historians debate. There's one of the the most uh, thorough historians to look at this was a guy named Michael Les Benedict, um, and determined that even after this so-called Wormley bargain, the Southern Democrats that were diehard anti seating haze. They don't change their vote. They stay as, as hardened as before. Uh, Samuel Randall, who was the majority or the, the leader of the democratic uh, majority, he, he stops the filibuster. He says, enough's enough. He's got enough Northern Democrats potentially in his ear saying, and and one uh, another historian named Gregory Downs points out that there was this continual usage of the word Mexicanization at the time, which was this idea that the government was constantly having these democratic battles that they looked like Mexico is how they would say it, they constantly couldn't pick their own leaders. You know, we had this civil war, and so there was this you know this overwhelming I guess desire to not look like Mexico, to not uh, continually fight these civil wars over elections, and the Democrats relented and 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 stepped down
0: and eventually porfirio diaz of mexico would probably have found that all <laughs> hilarious <laughs> yeah See he's, how his... he had like 50 years of uninterrupted <laughs> <meal>. <laughs> that's a darn
2: good point man i have not <laughs> thought about that but his you know his first term coincides with Hayes, so that's yeah that's very yeah uh but anyway <laughs> what i like to do so i just want to throw this out there because again like i said i'm i'm a i'm a Hayes representative and, and maybe my maybe um individuals might not take my word for it of course go and, and read historians takes on this but what i'll say is what what we do as as what i attempt to do as as the head interpreter there at the Hayes is point out that it really we can't go back and change history we can't go back and do all of this and wonder what if and and we can have our intellectual debates about whether there were was a bargain or not that's fun i guess for historians it's fun to do and talk about (laughs) but in the end i think what i really want to talk about what i want to talk to visitors about is to the degree to which you know there was so much corruption in this in in the way that individuals were preventing black men from voting i'm saying men specifically as we know the women's suffrage comes later um and that uh the way the Republicans would go in and find any means possible to show that Hayes won, right? So neither party is looking particularly great in this system that should have some mechanisms to ensure the, the most, uh, the most uh, genuine outcome of a, of a Democratic election, right? So at, at, the, at the Hayes, what we like to talk about is the means and the ends, you know, and making sure that the means are just as justified in the ends and what we do with our Democratic system.
3: And I think it also is worth pointing out that it, in the end, it ultimately wouldn't have made much difference. As you said earlier, the two candidates had nearly identical policies for what they would have done as president. There are some things that Hayes did that maybe Tilden wouldn't have done that turned out to be somewhat helpful. But given that he had a Democratic House and a Republican Senate, you couldn't get them to agree on anything either. So neither president would have been able to really do much to move the needle uh, on what happened during that four-year term.
2: Yeah, that's true as well. And, 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 and you know what? And I want to kind of go back to you bringing up 1960 as well. And I think that's yeah. another lesson we can learn from this <laughs> is that, you know, Hayes, when he uh, thinks he loses, he is talking to reporters and he's saying, look, I lost. And he's willing to step aside, right? uh Tilden after he lost when he really thought he would won and had a really strong argument for his win right you know he stepped aside and, and when he lost and Nixon in 1960 who had a very strong argument for why he won that election right um before they even did any investigation into what happened in Illinois and, and in Texas too I believe is the other yeah state in Texas you know, yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, he concedes. Um, and I thought it, I think that's an important lesson that we learned from these individuals who were very thoughtful about the importance of the dignity of democracy and the bigger picture rather than their own ambitions.
3: Yeah. Except in 2000 and 2020. But
0: I didn't say anything about that election. That's, that's, US. <laughs> Two Eventually, 2000, Al Gore did finally say, okay, time is up we're done, we're going to move on. And that ultimately, I think, um, this is, uh, I'm going to borrow a theory from uh, a Polish political uh, scientist who said that essentially, American democracy is a duopoly. And so there is not a major loss by giving up after a seemingly simple, clear election, because you get another chance at it in four years. However- like Cleveland,
3: Harrison, Cleveland.
0: Exactly, Cleveland, Harrison, Cleveland. The Benjamin Harrison, the only grandson of a former president to be elected. And if you look at it in that way, it totally makes sense, but it also makes sense why someone who's a political outsider, who's not part of that political structure, would not see the value in sitting out four years and would want to fight for what they believe was their rightful electoral victory. And that brings us to the inauguration in 1877. So I'm sure it was a a big, huge party like Andrew Jackson. They probably had one of those huge wheels of cheese and uh, lots of beer. I'm sure that was very popular in the Hayes White House. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, uh,
2: there was an inauguration, a big public inauguration, but uh, Hayes' um, Hayes' inauguration was supposed to fall on a Sunday, actually. And so the question they weren't going to have, that sort of a thing on a Sunday back then
0: also a very traditional odd fellows outlook on things. Okay. Um, (laughs) You know, no major events on Sundays. (laughs) So uh, Grant invites Hayes
2: for a dinner um, Saturday night and doesn't tell him what he's going to do, but he has Morrison Waite, the Supreme court chief justice there uh, to uh, swear him in. Uh, So he's sworn in a day early in the red room of the white house uh, but basically because Grant was asking the question, you know, if my term ends and you're not sworn in, who's president tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he becomes president a day early. Uh, but the Monday after he does have the big, uh, inauguration speech and does the for it re- goes through the whole process again with Morrison Waite um, and becomes, uh, the 19th president. <laughs> yeah and Tilden was receiving, by the way, a lots of messages asking him also to take the, uh, the inauguration. Yeah. (laughs) To be inaugurated and he refuses. And what's funny is, um, I was on a, a zoom call, uh, with a historian from California. His name's Gregory Downs. And he told this story, which I hadn't heard before, but Henry Watterson, who I mentioned earlier was actually visiting with Tilden and Tilden was, uh, you know, he was, he was getting up and he had this massage and then he got out of, off of his massage. And then they were talking politics. And then about two hours later, Tilden goes back in and has another massage and Watterson writes down, he says, here's a guy who needs, who does not need to be president. He needs to be rich. And so, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> and so maybe, You know, maybe it was in Tilden's temperament as well to not really care that much, as long as he still had his riches and his comforts. (laughs) He refused to take that inauguration.
0: Uh, (laughs) So this should bring us to the actual presidency of Brother Hayes and uh, what kind of stuff he did. Now, Mike alluded to the divided Congress that he had to deal with. And uh, so there probably wasn't a lot of legislative stuff that happened, but uh, there is one issue, probably the one thing he's most remembered for during his presidency. And it happened early on. uh, And again, it's something that has fairly recent echoes and that is the railroad strike. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I just wrote, uh, if you, uh, it's, it's our, it's our personal publication there to Hayes, but I just wrote a piece on this because, you know, I was, I was reading the newspapers. Well, I don't read newspapers anymore. Who does, I guess. Right. But as you I was read them online. The headlines and reading about it, I'm, I'm reading about, um, you know, this process that they were going through, you know, they, they had this mediation board, they had a 30-day cooling-off period. They had they had this debate. You know, they had uh, Congress getting involved. But Biden saying, "Look, we we can have Congress get involved here, and they can just say you've got to take the mediation boards." You know, there's all this mechanism now that comes out of the 1920s, as I was learning. Um, but when when Hayes was president, none of that was there, um, and so there were these these tax. or sorry wage cuts, wage cuts for all of these workers. You know, as it seemed like the railroad companies were giving all these payouts to investors, but they were uh, withdrawing uh, the wages from the workers. You know, of course, you know, uh, inflation, as we see today, this is post-1873 panic. Um, And so there was this, all of this pressure on railroad workers who were getting their wage cuts. And from the east coast all the way to san francisco you know workers are deciding to to prevent the passage of rail cars uh, except for uh passenger and 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 uh, mail cars of course um and so the um and so uh, they strike and hayes is getting lots of our, uh, call uh, calls from the from state governor saying send in federal troops so that we can put this down uh, and Hayes is refusing uh, and the reason why he's refusing is because he's very concerned about his constitutional capacities um, and he's waiting for a specific call for support because of a domestic um, uh, domestic or domestic violence. And I forget the exact phrase now that I'm here on the spot. But if he does not receive that exact phrase, he's not going to ref- he's not going to put troops in there. Um, and eventually he gets that phrase and his argument was they're not there to break the strike. They're there to uh, protect property and to allow business to continue. Well, the truth is, when you allow business to continue, the workers lost all their leverage and courts who are um, a lot of these uh, railroads are in what's called receiverships, which basically meant they were bankrupt and they were court. They had court-appointed receivers that were keeping these railroads afloat. So when judges are getting involved and they're uh, prosecuting workers for contempt of court, there's a very conflict of interest here. Uh, but in the end, what happens is, is that the workers get nothing. You know, they go home, they get none of the none of the benefits. Uh the 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 strike is as and these are Hayes' own words, the strike is put down by force. Um, and so Hayes, who really I think in this situation isn't so much a strong man that wanted to uh go after the workers, so much as he acquiesced to what was taking place at the time and um and saw it in a very linear kind of way. And he and he viewed the workers as uneducated. He reviewed the businessmen as uneducated. And he argued that the only way to answer all these questions is through education. And so that was his call. But in the end, if you compare it to what just happened, um, you know, obviously we're still dealing with issues such as paid sick leave, even though I hear some of those workers are receiving that now. Um, so not all the benefits, but they got a lot of benefits from a mediation board. Those workers back in 1877 got nothing, you know, so. Well,
3: I don't think it's that different from uh, the precedent that Washington set when he sent troops to put down the Whiskey Rebellion, Mm -hmm. which also involved courts deciding you had to travel long distances to do things their way, and there were problems with tax collection, and there were problems with monkeying with the money supply. And that precedent that you can't disrupt the goings-on of, of commerce and government, and not expect some sort of federal response. I think that's a precedent that, you know, Hayes was able to follow, and this, and the end result is always going to be the same. You know, if you kick the federal government, you're not gonna come out on the, on the happy side of that in most cases.
0: That's right, just ask exactly. the uh, air traffic controllers
3: of the 1980s. <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly. That's how you get Air Force air traffic controllers running <laughs> civilian airfields
3: or the coal miners in West Virginia.
0: Yeah. yeah, you know, and it's it's one of those things where you have to look at it and have a little bit of understanding to have kind of a qualified opinion on it. We can look at that from a completely modern perspective. We can engage in rampant presentism. Well, how could Hayes oppress the workers so badly like that? But he was in a very difficult position there where there were competing interests that all had different issues. On the one hand, the railroads were essential for American business and not just American business, but. The transportation of goods and services, you know, goods going to market, uh, produce and groceries and foodstuffs and all sorts of things. And as we saw during the pandemic, when the supply chain gets disrupted, there are a lot of problems that pop up all over the place. So, on the one hand, Hayes is looking at it going, I can't let the country just fall into disrepair because trains aren't moving out of Pittsburgh. But at the same time, Uh, He's also looking at this going, okay. there is this major conflict that's going on between labor and management. And what role should government have in that? And how much should I as a president or should the Congress or should any kind of federal agency or any kind of state agency have in intervening in that, you know, and if it turns to a situation where it gets violent how much of a role should the government have in going in and trying to quell the violence so that things can go back to work and be normal? There are no really easy answers to any of that. And anybody who looks at it from a contemporary perspective and says, well, Hayes was a fraud and he made a crooked deal to become president and then he oppressed everybody. (laughs) That is just a profoundly uh, ignorant and uninformed opinion. Yeah. I mean, I agree. <laughs> so what, what else did Hayes do in his presidency? Were, were there any other major things that he accomplished or got to do?
2: Um, you know, I like to look at Hayes in, you know, when I do this, I try to do some good and some bad. I mean, you know, every presidency we can look at it and we can evaluate it our own way. And so um, I think, as years pass, we our opinions on what's good and what's bad tend to be a little bit more solid than they are contemporary. Uh, but maybe there might be some disagreement on my interpretation. But uh, one of the things that is probably on the uh, negative side for Hayes um, from a modern perspective is he was an advocate of what would become you know, the acculturation of Native American tribes. Um, uh, This was a moment when there was this, of course, there were still Indian wars going on out Mm -hmm. west. Uh, He inherited the war that was taking place with Chief Joseph Joseph, uh, as they were fleeing to Canada um and he was a very strong advocate for native americans to be placed into schools that would basically um christianize them and westernize them so you know his argument of course being let's in the fighting let's try to integrate them into american society but from a modern standpoint that's not a particularly positive way to go about it um he uh, uh, positively for my interpretation, I guess, just because I'm, I'm a, I am like that he took a stand and he went with it, I guess, for if no other reason, you know, based on the knowledge that he had at the time, which was to resume uh, the currency on the gold standard um, in his administration after the Civil War, of course, with all of the uh, problems that were taking place with the, um, the printing of greenbacks as a wartime measure. There was still a lot of um, fluctuation in the uh, currency. Uh, Hayes, with the help of Secretary Sherman, were able, was able to uh, put that back on the gold standard. What's funny about that, sort of an irony in history, is right after uh, Hayes was able to achieve that outcome, um, Congress passes uh, coinage of silver uh, at a certain level. Um, and one of the big supporters of that would not only be his friend, William McKinley, but the gold standard president champion, William McKinley of later, who would vote, uh, in favor of the coinage of silver, uh, Hayes would veto that. Um, (laughs) and then Congress would override his veto. Uh, so, so oh, we talk, no. and if we want to talk about maybe cool artifacts in the museum that we have there in Fremont, uh, we have the very first silver dollar to come off the press after his overridden, you uh, know, so even though he overrode it, he still took that piece. Uh, <laughs> and now you can push a button and watch it rotate in our museum, but uh, That's cool that is cool yeah yeah Yeah. uh okay so i'll keep going quick uh negative thing perhaps uh is um well let me keep going positive he was a he was an advocate of civil service reform like i said um he uh was somewhat uh, successful at this. I'll say he did not, um, succeed. Uh, he did still appoint a lot of people that may or may not have deserved the position, but the goal was to appoint individuals based on merit, not people who were simply there to run their political machine, to get you reelected. Matter of fact, the reason why he was a self-appointed one-term president is he argued The first term of a president is simply to get reelected. They're putting people in place for their reelection. I'm going to skip my first term, go straight to the second term. Um, And that's what he claimed to be to do. I think he also just was fine to retire. He wasn't the type to want to stay there forever. Um, But he um, was an advocate of civil service reform. Matter of fact, he got, uh, he fired Charles or uh, Chester Arthur from the New York Custom House uh, (laughs) uh, because (laughs) as you know, as you guys know, because you've already mentioned Garfield, uh, you know, uh, Arthur was uh, the right hand man of Conkling and that would come out quite a bit with uh, with what took place in in garfield's election but uh so that's a positive uh, another positive is that he uh, vetoed what would eventually become the chinese exclusion act uh, we want to think of this as a positive for hayes and it, it is but in reality when you look at the reason why he vetoes it it's more because he felt like it conflicted with another treaty that um, that they had already made with China. And he felt like that would, it was, it was more about that than it was about the injustices or what the perceived immorality of excluding a particular group of people. Um, but nonetheless, he vetoed it and it would come into law a few years later. Um, one thing that came up, I think that was off the air, but it's important to point out, you know, a difference perhaps between what would take place with Tilden and Hayes, uh, is that, um, The Democrats were continually pushing for the defunding of the army. You know, of course, this was goes back to American tradition that we should not have a standing army. But it was also, of course, Democratic uh, leaders taking the lead on this because they were not wanting federal presence anymore. You know, the reduction of federal presence. Um, and but they were throwing onto these army appropriation bills this move to prevent the federal government from monitoring uh, federal elections throughout the South or throughout the nation, basically. And Hayes, um, again, this is kind of similar to what we see with the Chinese Exclusion Act. We want to see it as a moral stance that Hayes is making that we cannot allow the South to continue to oppress um and, and prevent uh black voting. Um and that is part of the reason, but he's also very much viewing it as a uh executive and saying this is congress trying to um uh, overtake what should be executive prim- or executive uh uh their 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 uh their area of influence. Uh, yeah, their prerogative. So, um, he does, he vetoes it multiple times. And this is, if you want to talk about one moment where Hayes is sort of like, you know, I kind of think of like John Adams with the XYZ affair, right? Where he, he's finally popular for a short time. You know, this is potentially that moment for Hayes where it just, um, you know, just his popularity soars. Um, Maybe Tilden does the same thing. I don't know. That's a good question about that. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is where Tilden and Hayes would really differ. Uh, Maybe Tilden would see it the same way Hayes would that, you know, this is Congress pushing too far against the executive prerogative, but, uh, nonetheless, uh, that's something Hayes does. Um, and I have to mention one thing simply because it's important to, um, uh national or, or world affairs i guess <laughs> not uruguay hayes. yeah paraguay yeah that's so yeah so hayes is not going to be remembered perhaps as a, a popular american president right he's not gonna he's not on mount rushmore and he's not gonna he's not gonna be uh you know ranking high amongst presidential rankings uh but uh he's well remembered very well in paraguay and the yeah. reason why is that Paraguay was um, in you know coming out of a triple alliance war where they were really just bullied by their larger neighbors, uh, and a big portion of land was in contention called the Gran Chaco, and they asked Hayes, well they asked the President of the United States um, uh, to to mediate this, and Hayes, largely through the work of his Secretary of State William Everts, uh, grants all of that land to Paraguay. So if you go to Paraguay you know, 60% of its land is now named um, uh, 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 Hayes. It's the Hayes district. There's a town there called Hayes, but it's Villa Hayes if you want to Americanize it. Uh, There's soccer clubs named after Hayes, uh, uh, schools named after Hayes. Um, So yeah, Hayes is very well remembered there, if maybe not here.
3: (laughs) Well, I think it was also important that he supported the Monroe Doctrine and extended not to have Um, a French canal in Panama. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I think that's especially important because uh, it eventually put the U.S. in the position to be able to go in with uh, Teddy Roosevelt's gunboat diplomacy and (laughs) build our own canal, because obviously we can see the strategic importance of it. And even more so on the eve of the First World War, being able to get materiel troops, ships from the Pacific to the Atlantic, you know, from one side of the country to the other, very important. And uh, not letting the French go in and control Panama, I'm not saying that that means that having the U.S. in charge of the Canal Zone was necessarily great. But it definitely was a lot less detrimental to South America to have a local hemispheric power like the United States involved than it would have been to have the French, because then they would have had the Suez Canal, they would have had the Panama Canal, basically the French would have had um, uh, almost a monopoly on that kind of um, global trade through the canals.
3: Of course, I think what he was concerned about most at that time was the kind of adventurism that France had done in Mexico. Yes. And not trusting them that they wouldn't do the same thing in Panama. Yeah, that's
0: definitely an issue because um, little tidbit here, Cinco de Mayo is not Mexican Independence Day. (laughs) Cinco de Mayo is a commemoration of the Battle of Puebla, where the Mexicans defeated the French. And interestingly enough, that is not a holiday in Mexico. In Puebla, (laughs) they celebrate it a little bit. It was actually made a holiday by Mexican-Americans in California in the 1860s, who were like, this is our (laughs) Fourth of July as Mexican-Americans. So you know, have a Corona and a couple of burritos because <laughs> that is an American holiday.
3: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, do we have any more questions for our, our uh, wonderful historian guest here?
3: I have one because just a curiosity, not sure if it, if it shows up anywhere in your research. Uh, I know that he didn't have alcohol in the White House. His okay, wife, sure. you know, was Lemonade Lucy. Lemonade Lucy. And <laughs> a little bit ahead on the temperance movement, but the temporary movement was a big part of odd fellowship at that same time period. And I wasn't yeah. sure if I Happened to know if he was influenced by other people in that realm, odd fellows, or if he got it from somewhere else.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I've not uh, dug into whether or not odd fellows had an influence, but what Hayes writes in his uh, personal, uh, in, well, not just per, his correspondence as well, is he's arguing that there is this growth of a prohibition movement. Now, he's a temperance advocate to begin with. I mean, even as a youth, he's given temperance speeches. Um, he um, is not a complete abstainer. He does drink, but, you know, temperance doesn't mean abstain. So he's 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 a He's a temperance advocate. He marries Lucy. Lucy's a very strong temperance advocate. She does completely abstain from alcohol. Uh, I do want to point out that she loses a lot of um, uh, support from the temperance movement when she does not go in on the side that you can legislate against people drinking alcohol. She did not believe in that, Uh, but they were temperance advocates. Um, But the reason why Hayes makes that decision, he makes a decision to not allow alcohol in the white house It's not Lucy. Matter of fact, Lucy would be called Lemonade Lucy after she had died. She would never have heard that in her lifetime, but she, but it's not necessarily Lucy. Although I do think she has a big influence on it. I can't deny that. And I can kind of bring in a story to explain that, but she, but the reason why Hayes Uh, chooses that is because of the prohibition party this growth of individuals who a third party that could potentially sway elections away from the republicans Um, and he argues that the only way we can keep those people into our party is to take a temperance stance so he disallows uh, the serving of alcohol in the white house And, and you're right to compensate for that because this was such a, uh, you know, part, you know, party, you know, he's trying to entertain people in the white house. He really overspends on dinners and his entertainment, uh, at the time there's these weird stories that potentially there were rum oranges that were served (laughs) underneath his nose and things like that. Uh, and, and it's funny we, we won't know the truth of this, but he, he argues that, Um, he knew about these rum oranges all along and he told them not to serve actual rum, but just make them taste like rum. They'll just think that it's rum. Uh, (laughs) But nonetheless, there's who knows who really had the one up on each other, but the one moment where Hayes relents, it's when the Russian Archduke is visiting. And his cabinet basically comes to him and says, you, you can't not serve these guys alcohol. You, this get, that's going to be a real problem. Uh, and he actually, and this is where I think Lucy does have a lot of sway because not only do they have to convince Rutherford, they have to convince Lucy to give up this rule for one night. Uh, and they do, they serve alcohol to the Russians.
0: That's kind of like uh, Churchill visiting FDR and he, how he had <laughs> to get a prescription from his doctor.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
0: And Hayes writes Garfield. You know when
2: Garfield is the nominee for the, or after Garfield's elected, he writes Garfield and says, "You have to keep my policy going, on 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 alcohol when you take over." Uh, and Garfield ignores him.
0: Yeah, and and then Garfield was shot and killed, uh, mercifully a very quick death, of course. Oh yeah, real, real quick. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> Chester Arthur comes into office. And he's like, "All right, it's party time, everybody." <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been just a, a fascinating, wonderful, um, absolutely completely enlightening look at the life and history of one of our greatest odd fellows, uh, Brother Rutherford B. Hayes. You know, I would hope that everyone who listens to this podcast uh, will go out and do some more reading. It's pretty easy to find information. Uh, I know on your website, you have a lot of great documents, especially uh, his writings about slavery. Go ahead and give us the URL of that website. Oh, it's, it's rbhays.org. You know, uh, you, we have all of his personal
2: uh, diaries, a lot of his correspondence, a lot of his speeches up there, uh, a lot of other um, uh, manuscripts as well that have been digitized. Um, all of the artifacts in the museum are cataloged there for you to find if you're that interested in looking things up. Um, and I'll give a little personal plug as well that I do have a little bit of a blog on there. It's it's about Hayes's evolution on his views on slavery. i uh, kind of taking a uh, a uh, chronological approach to it, so I'm really only up through um, his time in Cincinnati's where I'm at now. So you can tell that I'm I'm not I'm not to the juicy stuff with the mm-hmm. election quite yet, but But he um, but yeah, if you want to follow that along as well, I try to put a new one
0: up every month. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's always such an honor and a pleasure to have a a great, articulate, well-informed guest such as yourself here on the podcast. We're going to close it out now with the odd podge, which is where we get to share all sorts of interesting tidbits. I'm going to start this one out. Uh, I'm very happy to say that the Northwest Odd and Rebecca Association is going to resume meeting in March. It will be our first meeting since the pandemic. This is where the jurisdictions of Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and British Columbia get together and share information, collaborate. Um, They uh, have meetings, and we really try and share what's working in Odd Fellowship in the various jurisdictions. And based on what's been happening the last couple of years, there is a lot to share. Um, listeners to this podcast will know that Idaho's had a lot of growth and interest in new lodges. Oregon has had some growth recently. Of course, Washington, we have. And a lot of great things are happening in British Columbia. So I'm going to be attending that uh, the last weekend of March. And I'm really looking forward to it both because I get to see all of my friends there and also because I'm going to be a presenter this time. I'm going to be talking about some of the ways in which I've helped to revive the lodge in Wenatchee and how we got some new people in there who are really interested in Odd Fellowship. So that's my odd podge for the episode. Who would like to go next?
1: So, um, I'm pretty excited because uh, I finally uh, finished up this digital painting I've been working on. Uh, I started it in August of this last year. I've put probably uh, well over 50 hours are logged on this digital painting because uh, the program I use uh, counts how many marks you make and how long you've been working on it. Um, so I've logged over 50 hours on it. It's been a very long journey and i am currently getting test prints and trying to get the color correcting right so um but i'm very excited that i will soon be releasing a um it's called the odd fellows uh, symbolic vanitas so it is a imagine if you will a uh, a beautiful room just filled with all of our treasure trove of our symbols just being discovered and um Yeah, so that's all I'll leave you with uh, with that right now. So I'm pretty excited about it. And that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Once I get it, once I get the colors uh, for the print process um, to match what is, uh, you know, as close as I can to what I want it to be, then I'll be able to load it up and offer everything for sale.
3: But just want to tease it. Wonderful. Who wants to go next with their odd podge? I, I don't mind to go because it's going to lead back into Dustin here. I would be remiss in this episode, in particular, not to mention uh, the history of Canal Lodge. Yeah. It's the 175th year this year, and uh, you know the the Civil War was a was a rough time for the lodge. And uh, you know when the uh, war started, the lodge stopped meeting for a bit. The Union Army came in with uh, you know Hayes was there. Um, They took the lodge off Canal Lodge. They used it for their own purposes. They destroyed all our furniture and all of our records, and that was the end of that. Mm. But the lodge restarted uh, in 1865 with the starting of the Grand Lodge of West Virginia. And uh, all the old people came together, and they met in a hotel room for a while. And uh, shortly thereafter, one of the German immigrants who had been in Ohio had enjoyed being in West Virginia so much and being in Charleston, uh, he joined the Odd Fellows. He moved to Charleston, joined the Odd Fellows, and he became uh, the first Grand Master from Canal Lodge to serve as uh, Grand Master of West Virginia uh, in 1875. So a mixed bag for Canal Lodge, but um, always an exciting part of the history to talk about what happened in those early days. And I think. Although the Lodge obviously had a hard time during the war, afterwards the reconciliation process was really important in the Lodge and it, it really helped the Lodge grow. And then picking somebody who had been in one of the soldiers stationed there and having him become Noble Grand and then eventually go to become Grand Master, I think showed a lot about how Odd Fellowship overcame a lot of the divisions that they'd had before. I don't, I'm not going to read the whole excerpt, but there was a, a first record in the minute book from when they met uh for the first time after the war the secretary had recorded um the noble grand saying how much he had missed being with all of his fellow brothers during that whole time and that they were still missing the few that hadn't chosen to come back yet and i think that says a lot about the order and how things were absolutely you know the the latter half of the
0: 1860s is full of so many great stories of uh, reconciliation, Mm. (laughs) I'll have to edit that later, Uh, (laughs) that was brought about by Odd Fellowship. I mean, now in the current political climate, it's difficult to say it was wonderful that Jefferson Davis was able to go to the dedication of the Thomas Wildey monument, because of course now Jefferson Davis is reviled as a traitor And maybe rightly so, but he was also escorted from federal custody to Baltimore for the dedication of the monument to founder Thomas Wildey. And I think it says something about the way that the bonds of Odd Fellowship can transcend even the horrors of war uh, and all of the suffering and all of the sacrifice and bring people together in, in that way. Uh, And that's, you know, that's another reason why I think it's important to take a look at the life and service of Rutherford B. Hayes, because he was such a strong uh, believer in odd fellowship. And he really tried to live out the principles of friendship, love and truth in his career in public service. So now, Dustin, that brings us to you and you get to close out the odd pod. (laughs) Do you have something you'd like to share? Uh, yeah, well, you, you kind of uh, gave me an
2: idea with um, some of the firsts that come from Hayes, and I, and I um, will throw a few more in there. So maybe I'll just have a few little firsts, uh, yeah! since we like superlatives in the museum world anyway. So um, the uh, first, uh, Hayes is the first president to have the phone in the White House. You know, that was uh, uh you know, came about in 1876. Alexander Graham Bell's so the time was right. Uh, that phone, uh, however, was was simply went from his desk to his secretary's desk. But nonetheless, it was a phone.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Hayes uh, or Lucy is the first um, is the first first lady to have a college degree. Uh, so she got her college degree at uh, at Ohio um, at a, a Christ- or Cincinnati Wesleyan uh, School for Girls and a liberal arts degree. Um, and I'll make this last first about um, our institution. We opened in 1916. Uh, we predate the Federal Library and Museum uh, System. Uh, we claim to be the very first presidential library and museum. Uh, We opened with the purpose. Uh, Rutherford's uh, son, his second son, Webb Cook-Hayes, opened the library with the purpose that anyone could come in and research the president's papers, Um, and he had an open space for that. You'll have a few other uh, institutions that will claim it as well. Somewhat tongue-in-cheek, Garfield's institution claims it because uh, after Garfield uh, was assassinated, Lucretia took all of his stuff and put him into a library in the home. Uh, that library was not open for public, so it can't really be a presidential library. Um, and then uh, FDR make claim it as well, but that's because it's the first of the federal system. Uh, we are state owned. Uh, but matter of fact, if if uh, you go back into our archives, you'll see that when that uh, when when FDR's institution was. Was being um, uh, planned. They actually contacted our institution for design, for ideas, and 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 everything else. So, and so we have there on our on our on our plot. We do have the presidential library. We have our museum that interprets the life of Rutherford and Lucy, and we have his. Actual home that he retired in there on a 25 acre um, uh, plot, uh, and Rutherford and Lucy have been re uh, reburied, reinterred from yeah. their original bur- bur- uh, burial, and now they are also at the Grove there too. So if you come to our site, you can see uh, the house, the museum, the library, the burial site, and 25 acres of grounds that Hayes walked on uh, every day.
0: That's question. Fantastic. Why were they
2: moved? <laughs> that's web cook Hayes's decision. Uh, he really wanted his mom and dad there on the site. He wanted it all together. Uh, really weird stories come out of that. Uh, they, not only he, he, because of the timing of things, I don't study this particular story as well as, as, as another individual that works there who could tell this story a lot better than I can, but he, he, because of the timing of it, he actually had them, uh, uh dug up and he, could not have them buried right away because of the weather. So they actually were in the museum for months uh, before they were (laughs) reburied. Matter of fact, one of the things we have on display in our museum is Lucy's wedding rings. And that's unique because... She was buried with her wedding rings. So uh, Cook Hayes claims that when he was moving, when they were moving Rutherford and Lucy, that those wedding rings fell out of the bottom of the coffin. We're just going to take his word for it. But nonetheless, (laughs) they are not in the coffin anymore and they're on display. (laughs) But he really wanted them there at the site so that he's the reason why that took place.
0: All right. Well, at least there weren't uh, like grave robbers going after him like <laughs> Lincoln. You yeah. know, Lincoln, he just had a tough road. He, he was, <laughs> it's not easy to be a domestic wartime president. Um, you know, uh, the man loved the theater, though, so you can give him that. Uh, it <laughs> might not have turned out so well for him, but uh, he he did enjoy Our American Cousin. It was a good show from from what I've heard. But uh, then he doesn't even get to rest in peace in Illinois. You know, these idiots from Chicago are like, oh, we're going to dig up President Lincoln and make some money off of his body. (laughs) All right. Well, with that, (laughs) uh, we want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Like I said before, uh, an honor and a pleasure uh, to have such a great scholar as yourself to join us.
2: Well, thank you guys for having me. This was fun. Yeah.
0: Great. For our next episode, we have it's it's like a cavalcade of stars here at the Three Links podcast <laughs> because who do we have coming up for our next episode, brother Mike?
3: We will have George Glover, past sovereign grandmaster.
0: That's right. We're going to get a past sovereign grandmaster here on the podcast. Brother George Glover is going to talk about us. He has an extensive background in the legislative part of Odd Fellowship. So we're going to talk to him about how that happens at the Sovereign Grand Lodge level, how we actually make changes to the functional body of Odd Fellowship. And he's going to share some of his insights with us. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. Bye-bye.